This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for coming to this event, uh, which is hosted on behalf of the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism and the Government Department at, uh, the, Government Department at the London School of Economics. Uh, this year our seminars are focusing on the concepts of ethnic and national self, as well as the ways in which they have been translated into politics of nationalism, various movements, nationalist movements and policies and multicultural States under different circumstances and different times, including the times of economic crisis and war. So we are hoping that with these seminars, our speakers will help us understand better the problematic relationship between nationalism and multiculturalism from political, philosophical, legal, historical, and sociological perspectives. Tonight's speakers, uh, tonight's speaker will make an important contribution to this series of lectures. So let me introduce. Our speaker, who probably needs no real introduction, but the courtesy will not, will not let me skip it anyway. So, Mutas Krimli is Professor in Contemporary Turkey Studies at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies in the University of Sweden, and the Research Associate in the European Institute at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He has published large number of articles and books on nationalism, multiculturalism and identity politics, including Theories of Nationalism, a critical introduction which is translated into Turkish, Greek, Persian, Arabic and Albanian and used as a recommended reading in more than 75 courses in 35 countries. His research interests cover a wide spectrum from theories of nationalism to nationalism in Turkey, Greece and Cyprus, from the Kurdish question in Turkey to multiculturalism, radical right and Islamophobia in Europe, which I believe is going to be a part of what his speech will address tonight on nationalism, multiculturalism and recognition in Europe. So Umut uh, is going to speak for about 45 minutes, then he will accept your questions. So it's over to you, thank you. Thank you, Durkan, uh, and thanks a lot, Asam, for having me here. Uh, suffering from a, a mild flu, I'll do my best not to let this affect my performance today. I mean, coming from Sweden and getting a flu in London is a bit ironic, but uh, because it's like spring here. Uh, um, and yeah, I mean, this is this will have nothing to do. I mean, well, not much with. Uh, the, probably the reason why you know me here, the theories of nationalism thing, um, and it was it was ironic because I was trying to convince uh, publishers who were insisting on a third edition that there isn't that much, you know, that needs to be reported in three years in the field of nationalism studies, that the future lies in er other areas, but um, well, with a, with a few notable exceptions. And I strongly recommend, because I was able to witness John's presentation of it, the Oxford Handbook on the History of Nationalism, I strongly recommend that book uh, to everyone, which will be launched here in March, as far as I know. Um, so I'm actually shifting my area of studies slightly to multiculturalism, and especially also uh, the relationship between Islam and nationalism. And this is one of the first uh, outcomes of this shift of interest. Uh, although, of course, even though I want to leave nationalism behind, nationalism does not leave me behind. So uh, I hope it will be somewhat relevant to what has been studied in this um, in the MSc program on nationalism. Now, my point of departure here is a speech delivered by Ed Miliband, 
uh, in June 2012. This is the famous immigration speech. Uh, and that's where the title of this talk comes from, actually. This was uh, the famous speech where Ed Miliband reverted on uh, the Labour Party's previous multiculturalism policies. And uh, he was saying, uh, we too easily assume that those who worried about immigration were stuck in the past and unrealistic about how things could be different. Uh, but Britain was experiencing, you know, the scapegoat, uh, the largest peacetime migration in recent history, and people's concerns were genuine. Why didn't we listen more? Uh, and he finishes off, you know, he's talking about the need for a new debate and everything. And then, of course, the, the famous, I mean, I like this, this uh, unproblematic statements by politicians, this new debate has to reflect our values. Now, obviously, you would easily remember that in this same country, one year before, David Cameron was talking about the same thing. Uh, he was saying in his first visit, official visit abroad, in a security, at a security conference in Munich with Merkel, uh, that <coughs> we have even tolerated these segregated communities behaving in ways that run counter to our values. So these, are, these, these values apparently uh, unite the left and the right. Now the problem is, of course, if you ask how genuine people's concerns really are, we have a different picture. Well, first of all, it is, you know, um, immediately after this picture, it was reported in the newspapers, uh, statistics uh, prepared by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, which shows that immigration and unemployment in the UK um, actually has no correlation, no direct negative uh, correlation as it was supposed to, as it was argued by the politicians, since um, it was, you know, the existence evidence on the issue suggests that there is actually a lack of impact on average and a modest impact on the less skilled. In fact, the opposite, the, sh the numbers show the opposite, that immigration acts as an economic stimulus pushing total, unemployment, uh, total employment levels higher and dole claimant numbers lower than they would otherwise have been. Uh, then there are, of course, the concrete manifestations of these genuine concerns, which obviously manifests itself in the uh, electoral map, increased electoral support for radical right parties and candidates, and in some cases, uh, in brutal acts of violence, we all remember the case of Andes Bering Breivik, who killed 77 people, uh, most of them under the age of 20, in the twin attacks in Oslo and Nitoya. And the picture looks actually much more terrible uh, if you look at the actual figures. Uh, well, Daphne is writing on these things right now. And even this is not very updated. This table was prepared a couple of months ago. And in Sweden, and this is what we like to say in Scandinavia, even in Sweden, that's the title of a very famous book by Alan Pred. The Swedish Democrats are not 5.7% now. The late, latest polls show that they're 10% and the third largest party in the parliament. And this was after the famous, well, infamous uh, attack on a black uh, immigrant by the lead, well, by two MPs from the Swedish uh, Democrats. Uh, they actually increased their votes. That was uh, on YouTube and everywhere. So the picture is quite grim. Therefore, my aim today is to draw attention to the dangerous nature of the current debates on immigration and multiculturalism in today's, what I would refer to as omniphobic Europe, uh, plagued not only by a severe economic crisis, but I think a more general uh, normative crisis or a crisis of values, uh, which has been overlooked and all manipulated by politicians and academics alike 
or reduced to an epiphenomenon uh, which is bound to disappear when financial balances are restored. And I'm not going to, well, obviously go in, in 40 minutes about how I see or define nationalism very broadly and loosely. I see it as uh, actually, I mean, in this case, an, either an ideology or a sentiment, I would say, uh, which is marked by, among other things, uh, a feeling of absolute loyalty to the nation, uh, often accompanied by a feeling of superiority vis-a-vis -vis others. And in this case, key to understanding the crisis uh, as a catalyst, either acting as a cause or a symptom, and in almost all cases as a profound source of legitimacy, political, but, but also more general. And for the purposes of today's talk, two aspects of nationalism uh, matters for me. And one is its versatility, by which I mean its ability to articulate with different ideologies and worldviews, and, and its ontological, almost ontological insecurity in the face of difference and pluralism. So I will try to finish <coughs> off by sketching the normative contours of an alternative model of multiculturalism based on the ideas of recognition, redistribution, and participation. So let's kick off. Um, I think um, the problem that we face now is, well, it, um, let's start by uh, you know, putting uh, forward three arguments. One is concerns the return, I mean, relates to the return of nationalism, which is important from, I think, a, a, an historical point of view, not, not, not a long durée perspective, but at least you know, if you look at it from uh, in the se second half of the 20th century, nationalism was something confined to the uh, dustbin of history, well, based on the Nazi experience and all, but I think it's coming back and it's increasingly visible and is increasingly considered to be legitimate. And a natural corollary of this process is the tendency to cleanse or purify majority nationalism, uh, marking it off from extremism and crimin criminality, and restricting the latter, criminality, uh, to small groups and organizations with little popular support. And this is why we have this radical right picture. I mean, small groups, 10% in Sweden, 26% in Switzerland, uh, well, anyway, uh, or the deeds of a madman, uh, as many have argued, even the Guardian actually, in the aftermath of Itoya shootings. The second uh, corollary is the collectivization of crimes, you know, collect collectivizing the crimes when it comes to immigrants and minorities, and often, in today's world, attributing them to particular belief systems, currently Islam, and those who embrace um, embrace these, these belief systems are portrayed as a homogenous monolithic flock, blindly following the precepts of their beliefs. And third is the playing fast and loose with evidence. According to Europol statistics, the uh, uh, law enforcement agency of the European Union, in 2010, only three attacks, failed, foiled or completed, have been carried out by those who are described as Islamists, compared to 160 undertaken by separatist groups or people and 45 by left-wing groups. You would re recall I was in, in Beirut uh, at the time when Utoya happened and even Al Jazeera English for three hours assumed that it was, it was a Muslim Al-Qaeda attack until it was discovered with a you know, uh, relief that he always blonde and has blue eyes. Uh, and a couple of days ago, when the U.S. Embassy was bombed in Ankara, again, uh, all the Turkish TVs, internet sites, and I think uh, CNN as well, reported it to be an Al-Qaeda attack, whereas it was a fringe left-wing group 
it was a suicide attack carried out by a leftist organization. So the evidence does not suggest the claims. Two, uh, the appropriation of nationalism by political actors. But here I mean, I'm not talking about the radical right, which has managed to uh, substantially enlarge its constituents in several European uh, countries, even coming to power as coalition partners. But uh, what I find more alarming is the passionate endorsement of the extreme right agenda by mainstream parties for electoral reasons, and the flagging of an overt and aggressive nationalism with populist concerns. Uh, Andres Breivik does not tell us in his 1,500-page manifesto while accusing our leaders for facilitating, and I quote, the ongoing Islamization of Europe, that the same leaders were declaring that attempts to create a multicultural society have failed, you will recall Angela Merkel, and that some of them were taking measures to forcefully deport immigrants, remember Sarkozy and the Roma. And argument three, the foreign nationalism has taken on in today's Europe its anti-immigration, anti-multiculturalist and Islamophobic character. And the villains of the uh, nationalist conspiracy theories now are not uh, the Jews or the uh, communists, but the Polish plumbers or the Muslims colonizing Europe through immigration and their ever-increasing birth rates. Facts, Muslims constitute no more than 5% of European Union's current population. And according to, for instance, you know, just take the case of, of uh, Norway, uh, by 2050, uh, Muslims will comprise at most 7% of Norwegian population. That was the, uh, that was where Andres Breving's uh, attacks were taken. So how do they support, uh, how do they argue against multiculturalism? I mean, if you go through the literature, Three arguments come, uh, um, you know, just uh, come forward. But one is the overall ineffectiveness of multiculturalist policies, which which is, you know, uh, considered to be ineffective when it comes to political and economic equality. The most uh, important argument is, of course, the divisive impact of the ideology of multiculturalism, which obviously reifies cultures, hardens the boundaries separating cultural communities, leading to ghettoization, segregation, and demise of the welfare state, not to mention the rise of extremism and terrorism. Hence, some, like Steven Vertovic, talk about uh, a shift to post-multiculturalism. Uh, I mean, this is the academic debate. He argues that the changing nature of global migration patterns and the rel relative success of the radical right prompts us to devise new formulas which seek to have it both ways, a strong common identity and values coupled with the recognition of cultural differences. Those who are in, who, who've been, you know, who are familiar with the debates in the UK will recognize first the blue labor, now it's the, the one nation labor arguments here and there. Uh, it's pretty much uh, um, the arguments claim you know, that there's a little booklet, that leaflet you can easily access online, which makes the same argument. We need, you know, that was uh, the backbone of uh, Ed Miliband's speech as well. Well, uh, in this paper and in this talk, I, I kind of, you know, have four arguments against these, I think, quite uh, problematic arguments. One, of course, stresses the multiplicity and heterogeneity of multicultural policies, which target particular groups with different needs. 
So uh, even even uh, a naive liberal multiculturalist like Kimika is able to discern that you know multicultural there's no backlash against claims to differentiated citizenship or uh, any policy that targets national minorities. So not even you know Miliband and Cameron talk about going back on devolution. So uh, it is only with respect to immigrants, a particular group, that they, there is a talk of a retreat from multiculturalism. But even in the context of, multi, uh, of, of the immigration, the retreat has been uneven and partial, affecting some countries and areas, policy areas, more than others. And there's plenty of cross-national evidence that multiculturalism policies had a positive impact on political participation and on reducing prejudice. And if you're interested in numbers, his book with Keith Banting uh, is full of, I mean, it's, it's basically an exercise in quantitative analysis which shows how multicultural policies have actually been successful in terms of at least political participation and reducing prejudice. And third, um, this, this talk, the academic talk of the retreat of multiculturalism usually has a particular group of immigrants in mind, and that's the Muslims. And that is what I call the dangerous nature of the talk of the death of multiculturalism. Uh, and, you know, as, as Yasmin Alibai Brown wrote in The Independent the following day, you know, the day after uh, Cameron's speech, that the Prime Minister isn't troubled by Hasidic enclaves or Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish dress codes or the religiously sanctioned gender inequality. It's only uh, the Muslims who need to adapt, basically. And finally, multiculturalism is reduced to a feel-good celebration of ethnocultural diversity. This is a quotation from Kimnika, but there are a number of people like Tariq Mudud who makes a similar arguments, which takes the distinctive cultural markers of ethnic groups, like clothing, cuisine, music, uh, and treats them as spectacles of an ostensible cultural diversity to be consumed by the members of the larger society, or the, uh, basically uh, the majority. So my argument against this, what I will suggest, and this is pretty much work in progress, is that there is no binary position between a form of rights-based multiculturalism, not culture-based multiculturalism. This is a crucial point, on the one hand, and democracy and social cohesion on the other. And the kind of multiculturalism I have in mind is based on the public recognition of cultural diversity without, however, overlooking the, the multiplex, the, the differentiated nature of diversity-related demands and conflicts. Hence, the suggestions, my suggestions, will uh, involve measures that combine cultural recognition with economic redistribution and political participation. And this particular understanding of multiculturalism rests on quote-unquote universal values such as notably justice and equality, I, I should say, not on the inherent value of a particular culture or cultural diversity in general. Now, this is a crucial point that most liberal multiculturalists fail to address. And it stresses the solidarity building functions of multicultural policies uh, and treats democracy as a continuously evolving system of deliberation and decision making based on the selective incorporation of the new and the challenging. And of course, it takes its cue from Charles Taylor's uh, landmark um, essay on the politics of recognition, 1994, which takes recognition as a need. Um, his words are, I mean, are, are, well, I mean, just, just to quote him quickly, our identity is partly shaped by recognition or its absence, and often by the misrecognition of others 
So a group or a person uh, can suffer real damage if the people or society around them mirror back to them a confining or demeaning picture of themselves. So non-recognition or misrecognition can inflict a real harm, can be a form of oppression. There are two aspects of his understanding of recognition which are crucial. One is the dialogical character of recognition. We can only become full agents, cap capable of realizing ourselves through interaction with others, but especially not just any others, but those who matter to us, significant others. This is the basic principle of hermeneutics in George Herbert Mead. And uh, a stress on the fact that liberalism is also a fighting creed. It cannot claim complete cultural neutrality. So what needs to happen, according to Taylor, uh, in today's increasingly multicultural world, is a fusion of horizons, which allows us, and I quote, to learn to move in a broader horizon uh, within which what we have formerly taken for granted as the background evaluation can be situated as one possibility alongside others. And the fusion of horizons operates through developing new vocabularies for comparison by means of which we can articulate these contrasts. Obviously, uh, there's a huge debate that revolves around Taylor's concept of recognition uh, and... No. Uh, the debate, I mean, you can easily group the, the objections to Taylor's uh, arguments under two, uh, basically, well, I mean, you, I, I call them liberal objections, and then the justice-based uh, objections to his understanding of recognition, and, but I mean, okay, uh, for limitations of timing, I would just go over the second one, but basically they address two questions. What is or should be the normative basis of the politics of recognition, which goes hard to the heart of uh, the, this, all the discussion and the debate uh, uh, around the concept of multiculturalism, and what should be the scope of a politics of, of recognition. Um, as I said, I mean, what matters most, at, I mean, it's, it's a huge article and I don't want to go into the details of, you know, the boring literature review, but uh, Nancy Fraser's account of recognition for, for me is more relevant than the liberal obje objections, which are quite flimsy, I must say. Uh, and this is, um, I mean, Fraser's objection is basically that we are presented increasingly uh, with an either-or choice between recognition and redistribution. Uh, and by derivation, multiculturalism and social democracy. And actually, you know, this is uh, the main thrust of Miliband's speech, which seeks to establish a link between working people's flight and immigration. This is, uh, Fraser argues, a false ant uh, antithesis because justice today requires both redistribution and recognition. So the challenge, according to her, is to integrate both perspectives, which requires us to answer one basic question, which, which stands at the heart of Taylor's account. Uh, is recognition really a matter of justice, or is it a matter of self-realization? Now, for Taylor and, and people like Axel Honneth, the answer is a matter of self-realization, as you have seen. I mean, uh, recognition is basic to human flourishing. Whereas for Fraser, recognition is above all a matter of justice. And on this model, she argues, uh, recognition or misrecognition constitutes an institutionalized relation of subordination and a violation of justice. Misrecognition, uh, she argues, you can see the quote here, is related not through depre deprecatory, uh, I think that's the correct pronunciation, I'm not sure, attitudes or freestanding discourses, but rather through social institutions. So it, it arises when institutions, 
structure interaction between the majority and minority according to cultural norms that impede, that prevent parity of participation. So the model that I have in mind accepts with Taylor that recognition of an individual's distinct identity is essential to her or his dignity. Uh, but Taylor's further claim that this is a psychological need whose denial might cause serious harm to one's subjectivity is difficult to substantiate and, in my view, in any case, irrelevant. On the other hand, it also shares Fraser's view that recognition should be grounded in universal values, such as justice and equality, and not on the value of a particular culture, as I said before, or cultural diversity, which brings with it the, the risk of reifying cultures, basically. So the question in this context that we need to answer is, do people need a secure cultural context to give meaning and guidance to their choices in life? The liberal multiculturalist would say yes, uh, Kim Lika, and would actually equate that cultural context with the nation. That's the most problematic aspect of liberal multiculturalist evidence. On the other hand, uh, at, at the answer to the question is, is clearly that there is plenty of evidence, historical and contemporary, that most people do need a secure cultural context, even though this need not be necessarily a national one. And cultural liberty is incorporated in international documents. The most famous one is UNESCO's 2001 Universal Declaration of Cultural Diversity, which considers cultural rights to be an integral part of human rights. And of course you can find equivalent uh, clauses in all, almost all European Union documents. In that sense, a secure cultural context can be regarded as a primary good, just like healthcare, education, and is a requirement of treating people as free and equal citizens. Uh, it follows that recognizing and treating members of some groups as equals in current conditions in the contemporary world requires uh, public institutions to acknowledge rather than uh, ignore cultural particularities, at least for those whose self-understanding depends on the vitality of their culture. But we need to qualify this uh, in three ways. One, of course, the usual disclaimer, any form of recognition-based multiculturalism should be wary of essentializing cultures, minority or majority, treating them as fixed, self-evident, quasi-natural entities which determine one's choices in life. That is what, uh, for instance, as I said, you know, Kimika uh, basically misses. Second, and this is quite important, recognition-based multiculturalism, I mean, the outline that I have, should not assume that all demands made in the name of disadvantaged groups or minorities serve the cause of justice and equality. Uh, so in that sense, this, you know, any, any understanding of multiculturalism based on justice and equality should respect, A, the basic rights of all citizens, not only those of the members of the majority against which the claims are voiced, but also those in whose name the said claims are made. And that brings with it you know, the, the question of representation of, of the groups, that the governments actually speak to certain representatives of groups, ignoring the kind of internal uh, dissent that, that might exist, uh, or oppression that might exist within the group. And second, no one should be coerced into accepting particular values or conceptions of the good life, whether of the minority or majority. And finally, third, which is self-evident after all these things, uh, multiculturalism should be about more than cultural diversity, but address issues of economic and political inequality as well. Uh, an exclusive focus on culture does not, in fact, uh, square with the actual policies implemented in the name of multiculturalism. Still, uh, there is much to be done in this respect.
to be quickly concluding, last words, the normative framework that I have argued, um, let's see, okay, uh, seems more pertinent to the experience of national minorities than immigrants, but uh, one of the claims that of my talk is that the claims made by immigrants are not too dissimilar uh, to the ones put forward by national minorities, and in fact, uh, the calls for upholding our values, actually, I think, uh, show that the, the arguments that have been traditionally deployed against national minorities in the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century to protect the nation from the minorities, the alien others, are today used with more frequency and intensity to exclude immigrants. So immigrants are treated as national minorities, in a way. Uh, and it shows that, I think, uh, that today's nationalism not only that it is anti-immigrant and anti-multiculturalist, it is unabashedly so. I mean, it, it's not, it's proud of being nationalist. So, uh, one of the points that I would like to hear basically stress, going back to theories of nationalism, that it may have made sense to analytically distinguish uh, everyday taken for granted forms of nationalism from its more visible and aggressive expressions in the 80s and 90s. I think this is no longer the case. Yesterday's banal nationalism, Michael Billig, is today blatantly exclusivist and populist. And I know John will disagree with here, here with me, but I think we can discuss it later. And, and in the context of Europe, I think um, what, what is needed uh, is for cheerleaders of anti-multiculturalism to realize that the world is changing, the power balances are shifting, and that Europe is itself evolving. So in the longer run, Europe needs to engage in serious soul-searching and actually, it's, it has already begun, I think. Uh, was it, you know, that was an argument made by George Soros a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and reflect on its own identity, the values it wishes to uphold and promote. And such a process, uh, please note, has already started in some regions of the world. We don't know the outcome, but notably in the Middle East. By its very nature, the process is contagious and open-ended, and it's, it inspires the belief that though it is impossible to change the past, it is possible to shape the future and imagine an alternative being of thinking. And that way of thinking, I argue, requires a Europe which addresses its insecurity over difference and pluralism and embraces multiculturalism, not one that fetishizes cultures, majority or minority, but one that abolishes boundaries between cultures. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much for a very timely and informative presentation. Now it's, uh, the stage is open for the discussion, so you can take your questions uh, one yeah. by one, or you can take two, three questions all at the time. Depends on you. Yes. yes. Daphne, to start with, yes. Okay, I'll start. Thank you, Umut. This was extremely interesting and spot on what I'm working on, so I yeah. have quite a few <laughs> things. But the, just the one thing that struck me that I, I want to hear your thoughts on is what do you think of this, which is what I'm working on at the moment, that the actual problem is not that they, these people or these nationalists that are sort of right-wing extremists or whatever, they're not portraying themselves as against multiculturalism, but what I think is extremely dangerous, as you know, is that they're using multiculturalism as the justification mm -hmm. for their policies. So instead of saying, you know, we want to exclude immigrants because the society should be formed by only the members of our group, 
they're saying these Muslim extremists, they are not multiculturalists, and this is their problem. Mm -hmm. They're extremists and they, they want to erode our multicultural, liberal, national identity. You, you put on the previous slide, you had the, my favorite, the black sheep, white sheep yeah, campaign. Yeah. And the whole idea was, we're not really excluding, this is the Swiss SVP, for people who don't know, we're not excluding, the, the black sheep has the same connotation in English, I think. And we don't exclude the black sheep because it's of a different racial background, but it's the deviant, criminal sheep that does not like our multicultural values. And how do you, what yeah. do you think of that? Yeah, let me just collect, I think, a couple of comments as well, as we know. Yeah, uh, I mean, you talk about um, the ontological insecurity of nationalism in the, fa uh, in the face of pluralism and difference. Is that really the case? They've got plenty of nationalisms which glorify in, in difference, um, uh, and in fact, glorify in the fact that they, they recognize and celebrate difference. Um, so I, I'm not sure it's ontological. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's highly situational. Um, after all, xenophobia existed long before nationalism, and uh, to what extent is nationalism responsible for xenophobia mm -hmm. or simply the, uh, the frame through which people express it. But I was surprised that you, you don't mention, you, you're t talking in very much internalist terms, uh, perhaps as a political theorists tend to do, without discussing any of the external dimensions of this. Uh, the fact uh, that uh, anti-Muslim feeling is very much related to foreign policy adventures and disasters and the fears of, these con of the consequences of this in on the Muslim popula uh, population, the idea of the enemy within. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you, uh, again, you don't, you don't discuss the, the, meaning of how multi the meaning of multiculturalism has changed. Before, it would, about 15 years ago, it would be framed in terms of race. Now it's framed in terms of religion. Mm -hmm. And religious difference, I think, is much more threatening to the European populations than race. It, it, but religion is itself a project uh, for changing people's values and implies social transformation in the way that race never did. Mm -hmm. I think, um, okay, let me just try to tackle these two. Um, now, I mean, this is, the first one is a very good point because is it ontological or it's, because yeah, of course the Im immigrant nations come to mind mm -hmm. and I would say that of, of course it's, uh, well, I mean, you know, the, the only uh, the terms do not matter, and I think, you know, it's, it's, you're right that the, the term ontological is quite uh, strong. But on the other hand, I also, I'm not sure, because, you know, I would use the, the typical Billig type of argument, because, I, you know, it, when there is a crisis, when times are not normal, whatever that means, we see that even in those countries which normally or would have celebrated difference in pluralism, like United States or Australia, do become quite exclusivist against particular uh, nations. Now, in that sense, it makes sense to call it situational. But does it have to, I mean, is it enough to say that nationalism is only situationally, or, you know, depending on circumstances, exclusivist or not? Um, there, I think we would need to go back to our fundamental disagreement about nationalism. I think it is. Because when, when it's not, it stops being nationalism. It's, it's a very strong argument, I know, and it, it needs to be substantiated clearly, but I think it is based on a fundamental difference, boundary-drawing ex exercise, which is about identity-making. It's not about the nation only, because as you said, the meaning of the nation itself keeps changing. 
which is a point that you and I now even agree because you keep, uh, um, I mean, it's, it was race, then it became culture, and now it's even reduced more, it became religious. You're right, it's pretty much about the West versus the rest. So, I mean, I think this is a fundamental disagreement that will be difficult to resolve uh, and I think you know I don't believe in the in the project of resuscitating nationalism and making it more liberal uh, because it's you know as soon as there's a crisis it will go back to its basically fundamental thing I mean this is a very essentially sounding argument but I'm pretty much romantic when it comes to that I must say. Uh, so I'm not going to be ashamed of, of saying it unfortunately um, the external dimension you're right but here, I think circumstances matter uh, because you know, well, yeah, it is religious now, but it's it's always it has always been about culture and it's always been about politics, which are the two things that define any identity-making project, I guess. So, uh, in that sense, well, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 I don't have any answer to this. Well, the external dimension is important, but. Does it explain everything? No, I don't think so, because, you know, I mean, <coughs> U.S. was always, you know, into, into ventures abroad, but it, it, everything that changed after 9-11 um, has nothing to do with U.S. ventures in these areas. I mean, I think it will be, uh, it would be nice to, to have an external dimension to it, but I don't know how to put it into this kind of internally functioning uh, political theory. Well, using multiculturalism, I know that I didn't satisfy you, my, my, my answers. Uh, using multiculturalism as an art, well, it's, it's just assimilating. Um, well, you're right, but that's a discursive thing that they're using, that, isn't it? I mean, this, this is the ploy. I mean, when, when we were discussing these issues, the cartoon crisis, is it a freedom of expression or is it a matter of really, I mean, you know, the, the Muslims not integrating, not assimilating, in fact, threatening our fundamental values. I think this is just uh, an argumentative ploy that is used by academics and politicians. Because um, when you think about it, and this is, I think, where we have to counter, uh, you know, counter these, uh, these kind types of arguments. Well, first of all, it reduces religions to a particular dimension. I mean, it assumes that Islam, for instance, and well, in most cases it is Islam, um, is determines the life choices and, and the worldviews of everybody who adheres to it. Hence, they are inherently, you know, not liberal, not free, not democratic. So this is the famous, you know, Islamic ex exceptionalism argument. Uh, whereas, you know, other religions like Christianity or, or Judaism is not, are not considered to be, you know, uh, an all-encompassing <coughs> social whatever belief system. There we have a problem. And second, uh, in order not to lose the, uh, the the debate on hate speech, I think is quite crucial in this context because um, I'm quite interested in in recent couple of months on the arguments developed by Jeremy Waldron from a legal perspective using the concept of dignity. Uh, and here, I think you know this we, there is a fine line between the concept of dignity and how people consider themselves. Um, uh, to, to you know, consider or define their dignity is important because there are certain issues which are not that easy to, to be kind of uh, covered by the blanket term freedom of speech and you know those Muslims coming and are and, and kind of uh, disturbing our peace and not not integrating or assimilating because there are certain areas. I mean, you can't make jokes about the Holocaust, for instance. Well, you can in certain contexts, but not in certain countries. 
the same goes for, so I mean, uh, Jeremy Walden is working on the concept of dignity, which he defines in a very procedural way. Uh, everybody's right to be of the same standing, which, you know, which he defines a, a little bit, elaborates on it and all of that. So I think in certain cases, the argument doesn't hold in any case, because some of the things that is considered to be part of the Western culture actually is not. I mean, you can't just you know, consider the burning of Mohammed Carton. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this, my view is that you can't just uh, the burning of the Koran in the United States by a crazy priest has repercussions, implications for some people at least. So it's not considered to be freedom of speech as such. So first of all, what is freedom of speech then? You know, what is the value that they are that the Muslims, these Muslims, are threatening? And two, why is it that Muslims are the ones who are threatening and not others? And in certain contexts, we know that it's not only the Muslims. I mean, the Golden Dawn people are basically chasing up all sorts of immigrants, not only the Muslims. So, I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, in some cases, it's the Roma. I mean, and the perennial other, you know, never changing. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I think that argument of, you know, they are coming and threatening our values ignores the fact that what is our values and they keep changing. Please go ahead. Okay, Let's I mean, just turn this into yeah, a discussion. Of course they do. I guess my question is absolutely. I mean, if we're going to deconstruct their argument, I think the argument's ridiculous. I of course, agree with yeah. you 100%. But how, what does that mean for constructing then a meaningful multicultural society for us when this kind of argument tends to have a broader reach? Because as your it data does. Yeah. that you showed illustrates, um, people like the Golden Dawn who come out and say, kill all the immigrants, they're okay. They're, maybe successful in a specific context, but they, these ideas tend to be considered as politically correct. We can't identify with a party that mm -hmm. says, kill all the immigrants. But somehow, these other parties are successful precisely because they put this argument that you and I might think is ridiculous, but it does, it is more difficult for, it's easier rather for the voter to identify with. Of so course, I mean... Policy-wise, it's more dangerous. How do we deal with that? Not, is the argument itself bad? I agree, it's bad. Policy-wise, policy I think that's, you know, this, uh, this requires <laughs> us, if there is an us. I mean, it's, it's complete, I mean, it's a very tricky thing, but I think it's, it's you know, you should just actually, uh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking more and more that we should carry out quantitative studies and then, you know, just become public activists because you need to, there are also, I mean, there's a huge literature. I mean, you know, when you work on, say, Turkey, Okay, there are lots of quantitative data, statistical analysis, which show that the membership of the European Union, you know, Turkish membership of European Union, does not have any empirical problems. Okay, but then it's psychological. So it, I mean, so if you, if you look for the figures, you can find them. That this 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 little quotation that I used was published in the Independent two consecutive days. Uh, you know, for uh, just after uh, Cameron's speech, showing that you know this, and this is the National, you know, Institute of Statistics of, of Britain. So I mean, there are figures. Figures are there. It's just that it's easy for politicians to resort to if they're right wing or left wing, like Tsipras. I mean, to populism because it works. It does work. Simple as that. I mean, why would you go and say that? I mean, you know, how many politicians would accept that it's their fault, the economic crisis? but not someone else's. I mean, why do Scandinavia fare better when it comes to you know, economic crisis than, say, I don't know, Greece, uh, Britain, even? Uh, all these debates. I mean, you know, just, just today, you know, there's a very nice article on this Cameron discourse of, oh, we can become Norway. 
Uh, and then there is a Norwegian academic who basically shows that actually Norway at the moment is pretty much, I mean, three-thirds integrated into the European Union and much more so than Britain itself without being a member of the European Union. And facts and figures, I'm not talking about, you know, social science <laughs> as such. So, I mean, you know, th these, are, these are facts that, that politicians and academics, I mean, I'm not that much concerned about politics since, you know, our job is not to deal with them, I guess. But the point is, I mean, I can't understand the academic debate on multiculturalism and all. I mean, you can show that certain policies have failed, fine. But what does that say about an idea, uh, which is basically multiculturalism? I mean, get rid of multiculturalism, so what? You will not get rid of difference in diversity. I mean, these Muslims will still be there. What are you going to do with it? Sami, Sami maybe, and then, please, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, <coughs> yes, I, uh, uh, on the question of Muslim exceptionalism, mm -hmm. you know, the idea, well, why not Christians, why not Jews? I think it's, uh, you mentioned something which would be an interesting angle to come into it, which is about, you know, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, you know, mm -hmm. why not the ultra-Orthodox Jews? Uh, in many respects, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews are very similar to Salafi Muslims in terms mm -hmm. of their uh, social arrangements and exclusiveness and, and so on. But they keep quiet about it. Uh, they're not, you know, they may have mepleas um, or, or contempt for mm -hmm. the outside world, which, uh, you know, and exclusiveness and so on. But they don't say anything about it. They keep themselves to themselves. And I think what uh, is happening in uh, relation to Muslim claimants, and of course, you know, this is in the context of knowing this great diversity of Muslims mm -hmm. worldwide and different politics, but the ones that seem to have a strong voice are ones are not, that are not keeping quiet, or are actually making hostile statements about the West, Western culture, mm -hmm. making demands, uh, you know, that in fact you, everyone should respect their uh, sacred values and so on, while they don't have to respect sacred values of anybody else. Uh, much of this, of course, is not culture, it's ideology. Yeah, it's I mean, when you look at Hezbollah Tahrir, for mm -hmm. instance, uh, they remind me very much of the Trotskyists of 20 years ago. You know, mm -hmm. they very similar rhetoric, very similar organizational techniques, and very well integrated culturally and linguistically. You know, so in fact, the difference it's an ideological claim of cultural difference, rather, and the people who are actually culturally different, you know, the Kashmiris of Bradford, <laughs> or what have you, they keep quiet about it. You know, they are ghettoized. So in fact, much of the claim for multiculturalism points to the people who are ghettoized who are not making these claims. The people who are making the claims are culturally integrated but ideologically disputed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, so when it comes, then you ask recognition, you know, um, what's his name? Taylor's, Taylor, yeah. Uh, recognition. Recognizing what? You know, recognizing there are so many differences. Which differences are recognizing? And of course, the, the racists are the biggest recognizers, aren't they? I mean, they recognize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in fact, you know, we, we should really be talking about what manner of recognition, what is it that's being recognized? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the problem with the uh, with, with with what passed as multiculturalism, wasn't it? I mean, you know, because they were addressing particular representatives of groups which were the most vociferous ones, or were basically not not democratically elected to to represent those groups and all. And well, that's that's pretty much the problem. But then I think you know. Um, Yes, I mean, we need, to, this is the need that I think, you know, the recognizing what and who and in what ways. Mm. These are the things that we need to talk, think about and these are the things that I am actually thinking about. It's just that, you know, you can't just, but you're right. I mean, that's exactly the point and that's exactly the problem with Taylor's understanding of recognition because he wants cultural difference to be recognized for its, you know, taking cultural difference as its face value. And then he talks about this, you know, Zulu Dostoevsky. I mean, Zulus could have produced the Dostoevsky if they, have, they were given the chance. Which is not, you know, a good way of arguing for cultural, you know, recognition and things like that. I mean, because, you know, it's not going to work. Uh, but the point is, um, how do you go about, I mean, it's, it's I, I'm, I'm not sure whether, you know, if, if discarding the idea of recognition would be useful, but it's just basically turning it down, I think. I don't know. Um, yeah, you had a question? I, I think basically everything has been said already. I just to summarize my, like, to make some statements, yes, I think the right has always, over the past decades, appropriated the language of the left when it comes to multiculturalism. I think the idea of, yeah, what to recognize would be interesting to look at. I think that this whole anti-Muslim anti racism idea in the European Western context, but also looking at the Muslim world is, for me personally, problematic to well, to position oneself in, because you are either the object of the Western gaze, or you know, I, or, or you have to position yourself as a Muslim subject, which I find problematic as well. If you look at Turkey, I would want to mm -hmm. uh, identify as a Fethullah Gülen supporter or support these people, you know. So you are in a minefield there, and it's very, very difficult to find a voice or to find a, you know, a collective voice among those who are critical of this without you know, serving any of these interests. And um, yes, I think it would be interesting to say what, what to recognize, and I think these are the limitations not only of Taylor but also of, um, of Fraser's um, model. And I think that especially work of, of feminists, black feminists, um, can be useful. Like look, for instance, at the work of, of Sarah Ahmed also to look at how you know, emotions circulate in the space of nation, you know, of attachment to nationalism, etc. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Well, I think, you know, it's, well... And uh, one more thing, I don't think there's a bad, there is this thing of like, well, now it's the Muslim and it's not the Jews anymore, it's not the blacks anymore. I think we can't say that really. Um, well, I mean... Look at the riots in London two years ago, it was about black kids, for example. Well, first of all, I mean, yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, you, you can imagine that I'm not making that kind of a simplistic argument. I'm just trying to, to, to make the point. I mean, you have to, when you, 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 you have half an hour, you have to, you know, take something, things stick out. I'm not saying that it is only the Muslims, obviously. I mean, that would be a ridiculous argument, but it's more and more visible in the case of the Muslims and Islam, especially in a post 9-11 context. So I think, you know, the second criticism does not apply to me anyways. But the more general point, I think, which is, which is becoming more and more visible in all these discussions is that is a problem of political theory or philosophy in general. It's just that, you know, you have to, I mean, John is right, you, you have to incorporate into it some kind of 
uh, external dimension, thinking about changing patterns of globalization and all of that, yes. Uh, you, don't, you shouldn't make an argument about uh, today without taking the historical context into perspective since difference has always existed. So I'm not talking here about part, you know, and, and specifically or exclusively late 20th century, early 21st century problem. Obviously, these problems existed before and keep changing patterns. I'm just trying to take a snapshot. And third, I don't want to abandon the idea of universalism. So yes, recognition is problematic and it needs to be thought about. And yes, there might be other dimensions that you should bring into it, but still, you know, I would stick to my claim that, you know, there, there is something called justice inequality, which is, yes, which is considered to be universal values, and obviously, the black feminists that you're referring to don't, you know, I mean, I've been discussing these things with Nira and a couple of you know, other people as well. But then, you know, there, there are all sorts of different arguments there. So there's this famous debate between Judith Butler and Martha Nussbaum, I'm sure you're familiar with it, where Martha Nussbaum wants to go uh, to India and just, just you know, from a particular perspective, do some activist work, and then you know, Judith Butler comes in and says, "Oh, you're the Western imperialist white woman who's going there and all doing all these things." She replies back saying that, "Oh, your performativity and all these concepts actually prevents doing politics." Well, I mean, I think in that debate Butler wins, but there is a there is a grain of truth in Nussbaum's argument, and that in that respect, I stay. Uh, a staunch modernist in the tradition of our good old friend uh, Fred and, and Sami, because you know I think there's still certain values that need to be discussed. The the the, the you know in the debate on nationalism, I'm considered to be quote unquote a postmodern, which I still haven't been able to come to terms with. The postmodern in me would say that the meaning of the yes, but the meaning of the universal is itself culturally determined. Of course, I mean you know then. You know, when, when you have this, you know, this, this, uh, I mean, for me, the interesting question is, when you do engage in dialogue, say cultural dialogue, first, who do you engage it with? And then how do you do it in, in conditions of intense conflict? I mean, it took, what? Even in, since 1980, 40,000 people to die for the Turks, Turkish government to sit in, you know, around the table with the Kurds. But the point is, I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing, because, you know, when you, st this, this is the precariousness, this is the vulnerability of my position, because on the one hand, you have to go against these, all these generalizing and abstract tendencies, but on the other hand, you shouldn't fall into the, uh, you know, trap of reification, essentialism, and all of these things. So I would try to rescue the idea of recognition, or these big ideas like justice and equality, and in the meantime, make some mistakes, then going back to say, the little, you know, uh, differences and, and places in which, because, you know, okay, it was the blacks, was it the blacks who suffer most, or the women? Well, we know from theories of intersectionality and belonging that it's all, you know, identities, you know, that was the crisis of the left, wasn't it? You know, it, 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 it wasn't, you know, coming into terms with feminism or in the past nationalism and all these things. So I think, you know, there are still things that need to be kind of done or said in defense of universalism, but not, not, a, not in an essentialist way. You can redefine universalism. I mean, obviously, the meaning of justice is not going to be the meaning of justice that, I don't know, it's uh, John Rawls had his in, in his mind in the 60s and 70s. It's going to be a different kind of justice. It will be more multicultural than before. It will incorporate different values. But the point is, you have to start discussing that. And you won't be able to do it unless you recognize that there is someone that you have to talk to. Now, who that someone is, I would rather, you know, 
try to find that. The problem for me is with universalism that how it is discussed in the political but also in the academic debate is based on individual rights, you know. And that is like this idea what you argued against before, yeah. multiculturalism as exactly. the cuisine, as the you know, identity, marketplace identity. So I don't know what kind of idea of, of universalism you would you would propose that would be I mean, that's, that's exactly the point. I mean, the postmodern in me would say, and using Butler actually, in fact, that the meaning of the universal needs, I mean, that's also on the table. That's also to be negotiated and contested by marginalized groups. Today, justice is not only about individual rights. That we know. I mean, that was the argument, the cultural context argument that I used without reducing it to nationalism, was that you need group rights because cert certain rights are, are, cannot be addressed by human rights as such, okay? Because, you know, this is the first five pages of Kim Lika's book. You can't, human rights does not answer the question of how boundaries should be drawn, which official language to be adopted, you know, all these things which pertain to groups. So what matters here actually is not, you know, whether it's a question of individual or group rights, it's both. The point is actually, we come back to that, who represents the group, what kind of claims the group makes, and there even I said, you know, you, the, any minority argument, first of all, no one should be forced to accept any value within the system. These are practical problems as well. And who represents the group? These are the kinds of questions that we need to deal with. I don't think there is any room for discussion regarding whether, you know, individual versus group rights. It's passé. We know that it's, it's a matter of group rights anyway. So this, this, this brings with it a new definition, probably will bring with it a new definition of universalism. And I really don't want to go into the issue of how to do that because, you know, then <laughs> you can find lots of stuff that's, you know, about cultural translation and all of that. But, you know, I, th I think, yeah, let me take all three of them in order and then, yeah, please. Uh, uh, thank you for the very illuminating presentation. Um, first, let me state that I totally agree with your criticisms uh, towards the mainstream European politicians <coughs> Uh, regarding their stance against multiculturalism. Uh, but as kind of related to the previous point, uh, my personal objection to multiculturalism is that it seems to be built on a very individualistic understanding of uh, freedom, meaning that multiculturalism uh, implicitly assumes that if a cultural context is granted uh, to different cultural groups to manifest their divergences, then liberty is assumed to be ensured for all individuals living in that community itself. But my concern is uh, this, this may deter us from um, criticizing different cultures uh, from a progressive perspective based on universal values such as gender equality uh, and etc. Therefore, may also obstruct the functioning of emancipatory dynamics at the micro level within that cultures themselves. So what if the culture itself creates obstacles for individuals to enjoy their rights at the micro level? Maybe Nancy Fraser's statement uh, to ground it into universal concept uh, will be a solution to this problem. But if then we are going to assume there is something universal in, in its modern sense, then what is left behind from the multiculturalism? So my problem is, is it possible to be a multiculturalist without falling into the postmodern relativist trap in this context? Yes. Yeah. Um, 
your answer might be obvious, but why why do you focus on multiculturalism and nationalism in Europe as opposed to Canada and Australia? Um, it's still interesting to notice that Charles Taylor and Kim Luke are both Canadians, and then they do write in a Canadian setting and there's Canadian mm -hmm. background. Another question is, are you familiar with interculturalism that Charles Taylor and a uh, French-Canadian sociologist, Gérald Bouchard, have developed? Yeah, the Bouchard report and the, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, I'm, I am. But, okay, anyway, uh, there was a third, yeah, please. Uh, with regards to your, your last line, uh, when you suggest to Europe to find identity uh, looking for, who exactly are you addressing? I mean, considering everything that has been written and said within the last three, five years, both in the official level and mm -hmm. in everyday colloquial language, who, who is Europe? Well, I think Europe doesn't have an answer to that anyways. So what I'm, what I'm, well, I mean, uh, what I'm addressing, if you want to know, is the Europe of, of populist politicians and the rising radical right and even the left, which is assuming the language of, you know, its crisis and all of that. So uh, the point is, of course, there is not one Europe. The point, I mean, again, that's a very obvious and, and I think self-evident point. But the problem is, I think there is one voice which is, becoming more and more vocal in Europe, and that is the voice that I'm trying to basically fight against, which is the voice of what, what I discovered, you know, what I refer to as the voice of nationalism. And, and this is not a radical right problem only. This is both a problem of the left and the right, and this is not a problem of the radicals, or the extreme and the fringe, but the problem of the mainstream. So this is the, kind, this is the Europe that I'm addressing, and this is, you know, is it, is it a Europe of values or is it a value, you know, it's, are we talking about a Europe which is conceived to be a nation state writ large with its own others and with the way in which it is, it has been constructed. So this is just a plea for the other Europe, you know, the, 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 the Europe that probably the founding fathers had, the, had in mind. Um, the Bouchard, well, I mean, the, of course the, the, the debates are, have a large, but that's, I mean, the, this paper in itself focuses mostly on Europe, first of all. And there's a lot to be said about U.S., uh, but then, then U.S. and Canada are not the same things, but, uh, but that's a completely different thing. Yeah, but I'm familiar with those debates, and, and I actually there, uh, there's a book which uh, trashes the uh, Bouchard-Taylor report as well. The concept of interculturalism is just a recent development, and I'm not, uh, for, first of all, well-versed in it and how it is used, but in any case, I'm not sure whether you know replacing one term with another would solve the problem. Probably all the criticisms that are now addressed to me will 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 have been made again if I use a different term, which is interculturalism. Now some of some some academics are trying to put that in into policy documents as well, but it's still a very new area as far as I know. Uh, but then it's a different situation because even you know in the context of Europe. That's a very valid question. I mean, you can't address the issue. I mean, this, this is just a, a very general blueprint. You can't address the problems that we see in countries like Austria, Switzerland, Denmark, Greece, Italy, with, say, um, I don't know, Sweden, Germany, where the radical right, for instance, the vote doesn't exist. But it doesn't mean that there is no, um, you know, problems with immigration and all these things. So I'm not so sure about that. Canada is problematic. Canada, the Canadian background is quite polluting <laughs> because, you know, there's a tendency to think that the whole world is Canada, which 
is something I need. Uh, well, anyway, uh, the individual. Well, I think th these two points, re you know, respond to your question. Anyway, I mean, I never talked about. Uh, I said because it's, uh, you respect the basic rights not only of the majority or the minority, but also those whose in whose name the said claims are made. So this talks about liberalism within a minority group the whole question of illiberal cultures. You know, minority or majority, doesn't matter. And second, no one should be forced to accept, coerced to accept in particular values, which again goes back to the internal group dynamics. So, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it comes back to the, you know, the same this full circle back to this question of how do you do it? It's not a matter of having the principles. The principles are easy. You, you mean, from a liberal perspective, you would say don't tolerate illiberal cultures. But then you have, you know, you have to come up with the question of what is illiberal, what is, you know, I mean, then you go back to all these particular debates within, I mean, it's like the headscarf. Is it an illiberal thing? Is it not? Is it, does it reflect certain values or is it just a symbolic value? Is it oppressive? Is it emancipatory? You can have all these debates. But the point is, basically, I think this is something that you can't do from outside, which would then make this criticism valid because then you become the you know the superior whatever the outsider the philosopher whoever whatever you want to call it preaching certain kinds of values be it universalism or something else to different groups so my question is um, can you, or you're suggesting that uh, nationalism is intrinsically exclusive? And mm -hmm. the question then is, can we abolish nationalism, or should we replace mm -hmm. multiculturalism with, with nationalism, or do you say like multicultural nationalism? Uh, I don't think that you see that as a solution in itself. No, but it's yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. Please. Yeah, um, your title was on recognition, redistribution, and political participation. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what type of political participation we have in mind because surely part of this tension is that people are participating politically but in a way which is choosing options which are maybe not good for, for democracy so uh, maybe is, is mobilizing because they have resources they're taking part in politics in a certain way or young people are going out to the EDL they might not vote but they're taking part in politics in a certain way so what, what do you mean by political participation Okay. Well, the first question is easy to answer. There is no, obviously, you know, there is no solution to nationalism. If, if, even if I see it as a problem, there is no cure for it. So I think, you know, I have to accept the fact that we have to live with it for the, in the near future. But the point is, I mean, even, and, and you don't know whether it will be replaced by anything that will be better. So, I mean, uh, multicultural nationalism, I don't think that's a formula that will work. It's been tried. It doesn't work. Uh, but the point is, any solution that you would come up with to the problems that we face today is will involve nationalism in it, one way or another. That is why I think you know these the new labor or the labor one nation labor, the blue labor are trying to come up with a formula which would. I mean, it's this is the thing that you know the identity social cohesion goes through nationalism. I'm not so sure about this, but that's just a philosophical problem because if you ask me about you know, okay, it's good, it sounds fine on paper, how about real-life practical problems, there is no answer because there's no alternative. You can't just, you know, there's, there's no, I mean, there are certain formulas which have been more successful than others, and that takes us to 
cases like Canada, for instance, but then there are historical specificities that you can't just deny. I mean, it's an immigrant nation. You can't just replicate. And I know, of course, the whole, I mean, I'm not going to go to the very dangerous uh, territory of models and stuff. I mean, this, this just uh, doesn't work. So, I mean, a, in any case, what you can do, I mean, whatever formula you will find, you, have, you will need to find it from within nationalism. That's for sure. That's it. There's no, I mean, so, I mean, the, the, uh, the, I mean Craig's argument, Craig Calhoun's argument about nations matter, that, that any form, even if you want to surpass nationalism, transat nationalism, you have to go through nationalism, is correct, fundamentally. There's no way, no other way around. I mean, in my dreams, I can dream of a world without nations, but that's a dream, nothing else. Um, the other question, political participation, I mean, it's, it's there is... Uh, what if the people, you know, first of all, uh, what I have in mind is that, you know, they, these people need to be represented, um, be it immigrants or national minorities or others, okay? And the particular way in which it will be done will change from one country to the next. I mean, in Turkey, we're discussing about of, that they're represented now, but they don't have a voice. Ten years ago, they didn't even, they weren't even represented, and we don't know what will happen ten years from now. Now, uh, does that solve the problem? When people are represented, they can still opt for choices that we, quote-unquote, might not like. So, but there's no solution to this problem. I think the, 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 here, actually, we have to go back to the political discourse. If politicians, I don't know whether there is such a politician, but then, you know, I'm thinking, okay, let's just give, okay, it's been too abstract. Let's give a concrete, real-life example. What the Norwegian prime minister said a couple of hours after the Breivik attacks, I think that's the kind of political approach that you need. Said these attacks will not waver us. We're not, not going to let us leave, you know, lead us to abandon multicultural policies or liberalism or peace that we believe in. Now, if you, if you have politicians like that, and if you have academics who think about, you know, uh, instead of, I mean, that's that's my problem with political theory. Uh, who are, you know, instead of trying to come up with solutions that justify what exists now and not think what is beyond uh, is the problem that I have. So I would rather be, you know, uh, again, you know, be accused of being a dreamer than try to just, I mean, there are thousands, you know, lots of people who are writing on how, how can, you know, how you can reform nationalism, make it more inclusive, liberal nationalism, all these things, huge literature, 1990s. It's actually now abandoned. There's no one who's writing on that anymore because there's no, well, it didn't work, liberal nationalism, whatever that means. Uh, in many cases, just like multiculturalism, but no one is writing about the failure of liberal nationalism. Whereas there's a huge literature on the death of multiculturalism. Political participation, yes. I mean, they, these people need to be given voice. In certain contexts, they still don't have voice. But how they are going to use that voice is, is a matter of, not academics, I think, but, but what my duty will be to, I, I think, you know, to stick it to their eyes that what they say is not correct. You know, it's just a very, I mean, you know, and there are people who are doing that, as I said. I mean, it's, it's a good example. I mean, I, I, you, you may, I mean, as I, I mean the, lots of, lots, I mean, the, the, uh, Kimlika and Banting have just published an article, actually, 2010. I can send you the references if you contact me, which actually quantitatively also shows that there's no death of multiculturalism. I mean, if you look, if you, you know, come up with an index of multicultural policies, which they did, it is debatable, but you have to operationalize your concepts, as you well know, <laughs> darling. Uh, you have to operationalize them somehow. They do, and then they look at, I don't know, so many countries around the world which have adopted 
one or other, you know, politic, you know, these these policies of multiculturalism and statistics, regression analysis show that there is actually no retreat from multiculturalism. It's just discursive. Rebecca. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that they, we, there may be a certain kind of um, uh, terminological problem as well. I'm not so sure. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say that they're fighting for the soul of the state. What is this? You know, it's just even if they do, I mean, in, well, what is nationalism about anyway? I mean, it's just political struggle for power. For you know, it's it's just well. I mean, it's, I would just stick to the, the typical modernist arguments. It's just a struggle for for power, basically. That is a political movement which uses culture for political reasons, nothing else. So it was always, it has, I mean, I would rather say that it has always been about, actually, power, but, okay, some, I mean, sometimes, of course, to, 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 to achieve power in, at state level, but, or maybe, just political power. I mean, it may not be independent uh, statehood in certain cases, so I don't, I don't, I'm not sure, but the Facebook friends business is actually quite important, I think. We've seen how, um, how dangerous this could be when it comes to the Breivik case. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, some, sometimes you just say that, oh, come on, it's just a couple of, a bunch of people who are just basically, you know, uh, using the internet to just curse or insult or I don't, I don't swear at some people. But then one of them was actually making plans and sending his, you know, his manifesto to 70,000 people online before he carried out the attack, a couple of hours before the attack. So I'm not sure that should be taking so, you know, now I, mean, I agree with you that that's the general attitude, but I don't think it should be taken so lightly. I mean, we're having a discussion uh, at the moment there is the debate on, in Turkey, well, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it's, it's about a, an MP, an opposition MP, who said that the Kurds and the Turks are not equal in the parliament. Now, what the politician says is something else, okay? I mean, you can discuss about that. But then just go to her official Facebook page, and there are thousands, not hundreds, thousands of entries. Well, I mean, where, where she, I mean she, she's tried to defend herself, saying, I didn't mean this, I meant Turk is an umbrella, overarching identity, blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual civic ethnic arguments and all of that. Turk is not an ethnic term. But then you go to this Facebook stuff, and then you see people, real people, without seeking their identity, saying that Kurds are not this, Kurds are not that, they should be killed, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this, this is hate speech. This is not, not more than hate speech, okay? I mean, it's just, if you find the identities of these people, they should basically be imprisoned. And then there's, and, uh, what is overarching in this case is one Facebook wall where everybody can come and post stuff. 
it's, it's very interesting. And, and there is the reverse phenomenon. Okay, we're talking about group rights, cultural rights, present, representation and all. There, there are email groups. Uh, I mean, there was one actually particular um, case which really kind of uh, was shake shook me a lot. I mean, I, I always defended in the, the you know on a, in, in principle that minority nationalisms, you know, minority things, it's not necessarily better than the one, the majority one, or the oppressor and all of that. An email group, Kurdish studies email group, which consists of members of 650 at the moment, uh, academics and PhD students and master students, all of them academics, very respectable email group. Uh, I just posted something there saying that the Kurdish rights should be, well, basically on the basis of this, they should be defended on a matter of principle, human rights, justice, equality, not in a nationalist way, hence replicating the, the mistakes of Turkish nationalism in the, at the end of the 19th century. It took them six hours to, to first start me being a Habermasian, cosmopolitan, liberal, Western, whatever, uh, colonial intellectual, to, in 12 hours, to Turkish nationalists. And that's it. And, and I'm talking about, you know, academics. You know, these, if you look at the identities of the people which I googled, by the way, they're all, you know, Arizona State University, you know, Austin, Texas, this and there. Why? Because, you know, that goes back to John's point, actually, about the internal conjuncture. Because now there is a momentum, okay? The Kurds will have their own state. Syria, this and that. And then the intellectuals are like, I mean, good old Miroslav Roh, 19th century nationalism, you know, of the small nation, basically. You know, the intellectuals leading the way. So, does that mean then, you know, if you give them political participation, I mean, if these people were in parliament, I would be afraid, I'm telling you. It's not going to be completely different than, you, you know, the, the Turkish government, which has been oppressing the Kurds for the last eight years, killing them, basically. So it's not, you know, it's, I don't think in you know, little things like email groups, and this is where things are now basically turning around, unfortunately. Do we have time, Turkan? We have what, five minutes. Okay, five then minutes. one more maybe. Yeah. So ju just a very quick one. You're talking a lot about email groups and you, you know, YouTube and Facebook. Yep. Isn't that print capitalism 2.0? What do you mean well, by but that? It, it's, it's, not, it's not actually anything new or different. Uh, it's perhaps easier to do. It can happen faster. But it's still networks of communication, some of which are public, some of which are private, and a lot of which are in this strange grey sphere where anybody could see them, but not everybody does. Mm -hmm. And actually, not talking about anything new at all. There's you know people who have been sending poison pen letters to the Times for a very long time. Uh, you know, people were talking about the Green Ink Brigade. Um, you know, b before the last century. Okay, now you can do it on Facebook, or you can send an, uh, an email saying why, you know, such and such a person is, is an evil Habermasian cosmopolitan liberal. <laughs> no. How is this new? It's How quite new. I think, I think the speed is, is what matters. Um, so, I mean, you know, yeah, it, it, does rep it doesn't mean that there was no globalization, no communication, no, you know, all these things did exist. But, I mean, sending a poison letter to the Times and then sending a tweet to thousands and millions of people because that was the only way they could organize and to come and, oh, there's something coming out, you know, come out to the Tahrir Square, that's new, I think.
Because if you had sent a letter to each and every participant of the, those demonstrators who would come to Tahrir Square, first of all, you wouldn't be able to, to write that letter, you wouldn't be able to send it, and it would take them like days to get the letter if. Uh, it's, it's, it, I think that the ease and the speed with which you can reach information in quotation marks because it's mostly junk, it could be lies and all of that, is much easier than in the 19th century, even, even 10 years ago it wasn't like that. So I think, no, I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating the power of social media. Unfortunately, maybe, I don't know. Because you can also use it, harness it to your own, I mean, how do you think that, you know, this was one of the discussions, I mean, the, the, it's not about which group uses it more efficiently or not, I mean, it's not, it's not a matter of only we're talking about, you know, the hate groups organizing there. It's, it's a progressive force as well. I mean, you know, it's, as I said, in the Middle East, the Arab revolutions took place largely in the social media. They were able to film when there was someone who was being killed with their iPhones, put it on YouTube, and the rest of the world found out about it. This was not possible at the beginning of the 20th century because, first, they didn't have iPhones. Two, if they had sent it uh, to, 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 I don't know, to some broadcaster in Western capitals, by that time, another 10,000 people would have died. I mean, we were able to catch all these, the Swedish Democrats' killings, or the, little, the, the, the Golden Dawn. Uh, all, these, all these leakages come from the new technologies. I'm not saying that they create the momentum, I'm just saying that they make it easier to be seen and to communicate. That's the only argument. It's not, it's not that it is new, but it is fast. Okay. And it works, actually. I think we came to the end of our session. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for coming.